0: Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Amos chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning or you don't have one on your phone, uh, we have a bunch back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those and just keep it open to Amos chapter 6. And if uh, you don't have a Bible at home, then please keep that and let it be our gift to you today. Amos chapter 6 you don't know, we're in a series right now called The Hidden Prophets, where we're studying the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And um, we're in the second part of that study right now, or the second book of that study, I should say, in the book of Amos. Uh, we're nearing the end of Amos. We only have a couple weeks left, and then we'll be moving on to the book of Hosea. Um, but this is a part of the Bible that for many Christians is just completely unexplored. We, we like n- recognize the names of these books, but for most Christians, even people who've grown up in the church, if they were put on the spot and had to explain what the content of these books are, or even what the basic kind of plot line or narrative or where this falls in history or any of that kind of stuff, most people would be completely lost, and lost. And, and yet one of the things we said is we want to study these things not only because it's the Word of God and, and it's here for a reason, we believe He's given it to us for a reason, but also because there's plenty of application for our lives here. And there's a lot, as we have seen, that the people of Israel were dealing with that we are also dealing with today in our world as well. So with that in mind, Amos chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses of chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, Pass over to Colne and see, and go from there to Hamath the Great, then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The word of the Lord. So we're currently in what we're calling part two of this book... And in part two of this book, the prophet is declaring a series of prophetic monologues against the nation of Israel. Just as a reminder, at this time, Israel is split in two. The nation has divided, and it's divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, or sometimes, as is the case in today's text, it's called Samaria. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah, and it is notable because that is where Jerusalem, or the seat of Hebrew worship, is located. And so the prophet has already made clear that the the purpose of his book is to speak against Israel, the northern kingdom, and, and Amos has come from the southern kingdom of Judah to do just that. And along the way, even though what has primarily been prophesied against Israel is not good and and the future does not look good at all, there have been some glimmers that it might be possible for Israel to repent and turn back to the Lord, though historically we know that that does not actually happen and that the prophecy, even what we're reading today of people being carried away into exile, that that actually does come to fruition about 50 years after the time of Amos. Amos. Last week, we saw that the primary way that God wants the people to repent, though, relates to their outworking of justice and righteousness in the land. Last week we talked about two significant Hebrew words that we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament. One is mishpat, which means justice, and the other is sadekah, which means righteousness. And those words are often put together, justice and righteousness. You find it in the prophets, you find it in the Psalms, you find it throughout. And this has come up over and over again that Israel is a nation who has not done these things. They have not practiced justice and righteousness righteousness. They have oppressed and crushed the poor and the needy. Remember, Amos is primarily speaking to wealthy, powerful, cultural elites, the people who have position and have authority, and who in many cases, according to Amos, are getting wealthy on the backs of the poor. Biblical justice and righteousness directly relates to the ways in which the powerful treat those who are powerless or vulnerable, what we said last week was that that Hebrew word "sadakah is deeply relational. Righteousness is not just about like moral perfection or trying to be a good person, but instead righteousness, your righteousness, my righteousness, the righteousness we 're talking about here, it directly relates to how we treat other people, right? If the thing that we read at the beginning of the service is true that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, and that that one statement is the summation of the law and the prophets according to Christ, then how we treat other people matters deeply to God. And I would say we cannot love God if we are not willing to love other people if we don't see the people around us as people who have need and as people who we are sent to as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So that's what biblical justice and righteousness is all about. And in the context of Israel at this point, the powerful were using their wealth not only to directly oppress the poor. We read about that early on in the book that people were being thrown into slavery for like the smallest, most like ridiculous debts. But, but also, people are using their wealth to insulate themselves from the plight of the poor. They're using their wealth to construct a bubble that they can exist within so that they can just be oblivious to what's going on around them. And that sort of oblivion to the rest of the world will come up in today's text as well. Justice and righteousness have to do with the ways that Israel's treating other people, people in their In their kingdom, people in other nations, what we said last week is that the Lord has called them to enact justice and righteousness, which is the restorative work of repairing social, systemic, societal problems. And I think it's worth noting that the primary problem here is not the fact that poor people exist in the land. That's actually not what the Lord is calling them to like, fix. The call of God is not to put an end to poverty. That's not something he's laid on the people of Israel. The goal, instead, is to treat the poor fairly and equitably with empathy and compassion and to certainly work restoratively to improve their situation and to not make their situation worse even if it benefits you. God had written in care for the poor to the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible where we find the law, not only the Ten Commandments, but also a host of other laws that God handed down to Moses. And within the Torah, there's all kinds of stipulations that put in place in in like a set-in-stone legal sense care and compassion and concern for those who are vulnerable in society. One of those things is known as the law of the harvest. If you're not familiar with this, this is basically the idea behind the law of the harvest. If you are a farmer and you plant a field full of wheat, let's say this is your field of wheat, when you go in to harvest the field, the law of the harvest says that you are to leave a border on the outside of your field of unharvested grain. Who's that for? It's not for you, it's for the poor and the vulnerable among you. They are to be able to come and to glean from this outer ring of your field, the wheat you planted, the wheat you paid for. The poor are supposed to be able to come and glean from this for free. So what's here in the middle is yours, but even it's not all yours because god says no 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 i want you to tithe right i want you to give a tenth of what i've given to you what i've blessed you with i want you to give that to the service of the lord to the service of the temple and the temple worship that's going on and then what's left is yours to do what you want with to feed your family to provide for those around you so so even in the torah there are laws that provide opportunities for the poor to be cared for, not to put an end to poverty as a whole, not to create some kind of utopian society, but instead to have compassion and empathy and concern for those who are, are vulnerable in society. Part of the problem here in Amos, this is true today as well, is that often the point of view of those who are in power and those who have wealth in the culture is that the poor are dumb, or stupid, or lazy, or sinful, that their poverty only stems from bad decisions that they've made in life, dumb things that they've done. I can tell you a few years ago when I was executive director at The Hub, that was a sentiment that we heard often from people who were volunteering with us, whether it was something they would say outright or it was, it was kind of incumbent in some of the questions that they would ask of us was this idea that all of these people who come here to get food or to get some clothing or to just have some shelter for a little while, that all of these people could be me were it not for stupid decisions they've made in their life. And, and to be fair, there were occasionally some of those folks who grew up in a middle class or above envir- environment and who, through a series of dumb decisions, whether it was to uh, get involved in criminal activity or it was to get involved in gambling, which is a big deal around here, we would continually see people who were on the street because of gambling or or to get involved in drugs and, and ultimately became addicted and fell into that. Like, we would occasionally see some of those folks. But the vast majority of people that we saw every day were people who came out of Generational poverty, right? They were people whose parents were poor and whose grandparents were poor, who had never known a life outside of the world of poverty. So often it can Be the mindset of some that the poor need to just stop being lazy and to get a job and to work hard. And if they do all of those things, then they're not going to be poor anymore. But one of the things that the Old Testament emphasizes is that within this culture, there is what some people call that quartet of the vulnerable, like people who are just continually throughout history, those who are most vulnerable in any society. And at this point in time, it's the widow it's the orphan, it's the immigrant, and it's just the poor in general. And what the quartet of the vulnerable illuminates for us is the fact that one's state of poverty is not always directly related to one's like work ethic or one's willingness to work or, or one's like level of intelligence, but, but rather it often relates to one's life circumstances. When you consider people like widows and orphans and immigrants, it becomes clear why there is poverty in a place like Israel. I mean, widows during the time of Amos were not simply women who had lost their spouse, but instead were women who had no means of supporting themselves because they had lost their spouse. They were truly at the mercy of other people. We see this in the New Testament as well because it's something the early church dealt with. Within the early church, there were widows who were literally throwing themselves on the mercy of the church to provide for their needs, to take care of them. It's part of the reason why the office of deacon is created in the New Testament. It is to care for the needs of widows who are in their midst. Orphans were in a similar situation, a difficult situation, because in that culture, one typically took on the trade of one's father. So if you don't have a father, or you don't have a family, or if no one's taking you in, then what's probably going to happen to you is that you're going to become a slave. That's just kind of how things went at this point in time. So you're in a bad place. And then, if you think about immigrants, much like in America today, racism certainly existed in Israel, xenophobia certainly existed in Israel. Like, true Israelites were, were leery of immigrants who were coming in to their country. That's not some new phenomenon. And yet at this time, because of the Assyrians who were just like rampaging all over the area, many people were fleeing war, they were fleeing drought and famine and all that kind of stuff. They were coming to Israel, a place that at this point in time was prosperous, that was abounding, that was sort of blossoming in a um, financial sense. But the culture was not welcoming to them, even though God, in the Torah, again, desired Israel to be a place welcoming to the immigrant, to the sojourner, to the, what it calls the resident alien, depending on your translation. In America today, if you're an immigrant coming from a place of poverty or fleeing or if you're a refugee, especially if you're one who doesn't speak the language, it's not like there are well-paying job options available to you here in America Even if you get a a 40-hour-a-week minimum wage job, you're only making $7.25 an hour, right? So so that's $290 a week or $15,000 a year. So if you're not aware, $15,000 a year is only $2,200 a year above the poverty line. And that's if you're working full-time in a minimum wage job, You're $2,200 above the poverty line a year, or you're $42 a week away from being in poverty. However, if you have a child, you're a single parent, you're working a full-time minimum wage job, you are technically in poverty because you are not simply supporting yourself. You would actually be making $2,400 below the poverty line per year if you're making $15,000 for a family of two. And when that's your situation, God, like there's so much working against you, you probably don't have health insurance. Um, you're, you're probably taking public transportation because you don't own a car or you can't pay for insurance for a car. And public transportation is obviously super unreliable, which means you're probably late for work often, which isn't good if you want to keep your job. How do you get out of that situation? When you're basically netting $42 a week above the poverty line, just getting another job is not always an option, or, or working 60 hours a week, just going to college or just getting a degree is not an option to you. What do you do? MIT economist Peter Tiemann has asserted through his research that in America today, it requires 20 years of virtually nothing going wrong in order for a person to get out of poverty. Not for a person to become wealthy, not even for a person to become middle class, but just for a person to get out of poverty. No lost jobs, no health issues, no unexpected financial problems for 20 years. In other words, it's like virtually impossible. Like if you've come out of generational poverty, even if you're working 20 years, to truly dig out 20 years of nothing going wrong, which isn't true for me. My air conditioning went out a few weeks ago, right? For some people, that would be devastating. It's, it's not for me, praise the Lord, but, but for so many in our world today, something like that, the, air, the air's not getting fixed, right? In our text today, Amos calls out those who are, quote, at ease in Zion and those who are, living securely on the mountain of Samaria. So it's not just Israel. He brings in Judah here because that word Zion, that's a word that references Jerusalem. So, so he's now talking about the whole people of God, both Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. It's happening in both places. And Amos' intent here is not just to call out their lives of luxurious ease, but but more to indict their complete lack of concern for the state of their nation. The nation is split. Pagan worship is rampant. There's great poverty. The law of God has been completely abandoned. But because there's financial prosperity for Amos' audience, the people are largely unconcerned. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Pass over to Calne and see. And from there, go down to Hamath the Great and go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? All three of those cities that he mentions, Calne, Hamath, and Goth, were all bigger and stronger cities than even Jerusalem or Samaria, and yet they had all fallen. And they're also geographically kind of like all over the region. So if we were looking at a map of the Fertile Crescent, those cities are kind of dotting the perimeter of that whole area. And so it's almost like Amos is saying, everywhere you look, greater places, greater civilizations, greater cities have been destroyed. Why do you act like it can't happen to you? Why do you act like you're immune? Verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. In the northern kingdom of Israel, the predominant tribes were the descendants of Joseph. And notice what he says here. He mentions those who lie on beds of ivory and who stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs and all of these things. And, and are, like, are these things necessarily sinful? Like is it, is it wrong for you to stretch out on your couch? Like, is, is it wrong for you to eat lamb or beef? Is it wrong for you to drink wine? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you guys are doing all of these things while the heritage of your forefather, Joseph, is falling to ruin in your midst. You're like fiddling while Rome burns. It's it's you're living in this bubble where it's it's not only that your needs are provided for. Like you're you're not just lying on a bed. You're lying on a bed made out of ivory, right? And, And and you're stretching yourself out on your couch when maybe somebody else doesn't have one. And you're not just eating lamb. You're like choosing from among your flocks. And the same is true with beef. And 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 you have time. To just sit around and just sing songs, whatever you want to sing, like it doesn't matter. Like you're, you're inventing new instruments for yourselves and, and you're just drinking bowls of wine, right? And, and meanwhile, everything is kind of burning around you. How are you not grieved over this? While you're anointing your bodies with the finest oils, you're at the same time crushing the poor, Woe to you. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in much the same way, saying, woe to you, over and over again. And for them, it's religious hypocrisy, for neglecting justice and mercy, Jesus says, for appearing righteous on the outside while really being filled with greed and self-indulgence. I don't really know that we're talking about different things here between the Pharisees and the people of Amos' day. Verse 7, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So again, Amos is kind of famous for his sarcasm. Back in verse 1, Amos called them the first of the nations, which is probably the way that people thought of themselves at this time. We're the best. We're the most prominent. We're the strongest. We're the wealthiest. But then in verse 7, he says, it's the first of the nations who will be the first to go into exile, which is true. Israel, the northern kingdom, is ultimately conquered and scattered first, and then later it happens to Judah as well. And in some ways, it seems like in principle, this is echoing Jesus's later words, the first shall be Last. Israel, your greed, your self-focus, your lack of compassion will be your undoing. Um, so, so obviously, this is also the way that many people think of America today, right? This, this first mentality. In fact, we've been hearing the slogan America first from the political right for the last few years, we're prosperous, we're wealthy, we're militarily strong, we tend to get our way on a geopolitical level, and yet the gap between the rich and the poor is widening. And the recent political turmoil, racial unrest, hate crimes, global pandemic has definitely shown that there's some like cracks in the armor. But remember what we said last week, that we can't read about Israel and assume that we can just apply all of that to America that we can just take whatever God is saying to his people, Israel, and just extrapolate it out to America today and that the correct interpretation of this is that it's America today, but rather the question should be directed at me and you. In what ways am I saying me first? In what ways am I at ease and unconcerned with the world around me? Remember, the issue here with people being in their luxurious bubble is not just the fact that things are not going well in the culture or that things are maybe not going well on a political level around them. The problem is they've removed themselves from the people who need them, who need their resources, who need the blessings that the Lord has given them, that they've separated themselves from those people. So they aren't treating them fairly or with equity. And in some cases, they're outright oppressing them. That's the problem, is is the separation. That you would exist in your bubble unconcerned with the Lazarus who's laying on your doorstep dying. And so maybe a simple step for us today could be to ask, how am I applying the law of the harvest in my own life? Now, I don't know that this is necessarily a law that we are under anymore as followers of Christ, but I think it's a great principle. It's certainly a principle that God seemed to think was a good principle. In other words, do all my resources go to me, or am I leaving space in my life to be generous towards others? Am I leaving space in my life to help others? I mean, that is is counter-cultural thinking in our culture today. Especially, you know, if you think about widows and orphans and immigrants and all this stuff, and the idea that the the people of God were to help take care of them. If you start talking that kind of stuff today, you, you will very quickly be accused of being a socialist. But this is not like a political agenda. It's an agenda of love. Of loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbor in the way that we love ourselves when all of your resources or all of my resources go to me then i am not loving my neighbor as myself and and the scripture would continually put forth this notion that what you have is not just for you and to those who much is given much is required It's a recognition that what we have has come from the Lord. And one of the ways that you rebel against a life of luxurious ease, where you're insulated from the plight of others, is to devote a portion of your money and your time to such people. And to just say, this is the part of my field that is for that. So that I can't say, the whole field is mine. This all belongs to me. This is all for my good. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if Christ is our treasure, as we often sing, then our money and our time will be viewed as like disposable commodities to be used to bless others in the name of Christ. If Christ is not our treasure, then our money and what we do with our time will ultimately become sources of meaning, identity, and purpose for us which is to say that the way we use those things will become all about us. So we have to push back. And, and many of you guys are doing just that. Jimmy and Lee, who are not here this morning, are going through the process of adopting a child, which, whether you realize it or not, is, is a direct response to poverty, to need that's in our world today. Uh, Morgan's recently started volunteering with teenage girls through the Purchase program here in Shreveport, who are at risk of being trafficked or who are at risk of falling into prostitution, she's giving her time and her resources to that. Uh, many of you know our friends Jason and Katie Mook, who are going to be gone next weekend because they're going to be in Fort Worth working with the refugee population in Fort Worth. Jason goes over there. He's a doctor. He sets up a little medical clinic where they go door to door and offer medical help to folks, and it's, it's a way to bless and the way to take my time, my resources, and devote a portion of this to others. Not so that I can just check a box, but so that I can love other people as myself. So, so where is that space in your life? What, what is that portion of your field that you have mapped out as being, it's not for me? It's not mine to use. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. And, and Let's take just a few moments of silence, and I'd like for you to pray where you are and to ask him that very question, Father, like, what is that boundary in my field? What does it look like? What have you given me? And is it all for me? What portion should I be setting aside for the good of others around me? Father, we can't help uh, think about these things without thinking of Christ, who, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself even to the point of death. His love of you is manifested through his love of us. We see it, we see his obedience. And so, Father, if we are in danger of living lives of prosperous ease, where we're secluded and sequestered away in our bubble, would you wake us up to that, Father? Father, give us insight to the ways in which our resources, both our time and our money and also gifts that you've given us, talents you've given us, the ways that we're offering those up to you as a sacrifice, Not so that we get some jewel in our crown, but so that others are blessed and cared for and treated fairly in the name of Jesus. Father, would you give us each a vision for what it looks like for us to work and act restoratively in the world? Sometimes that means in our own family, sometimes that means in our neighborhoods or in our workplaces or... Somewhere else, else entirely, God, that you've given us a vision for, a passion for. The irony of today's text, in my mind, is that even though many people might be apt to see the poor as being lazy, Amos presents that it's really the rich. Father, help us to not fall into that same trap. Help us to pursue your will before we pursue our own comfort. Show us what that looks like in our life in the name of Christ. Amen. Stand with us.